All right, let me say a pleasant good morning to everyone. I hope you all are doing well. Um, I'm thinking, it's, ama it's amazing, I'm thinking between last night and this morning's devotion, they really prepared a nice segue for our discussion this morning. We're gonna be dealing with practical Christianity in light of last day events. And that's what our whole entire series is about. Practical Christianity in light of last day events. And you will understand why this subject is so imperative for the Christian. There are going to be many quotations that I'll be sharing with you, both from the Bible and from the spirit of prophecy. There'll be references that I'll even be giving from history and current events. So that's the reason why I want you to make sure you have a pen and paper handy, because this is going to be something that, by God's grace, you will be well-informed Christians. And as a result of that, you will know how to take these theoretical truths and allow it to assimilate into a daily practice in yours and my life. This morning's topic, this first session, we're dealing with how close is close. And I'm really glad for Brother Ung's uh, presentation this morning because he kind of helped us to see somewhat of where we are in time and in prophecy right now. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and we're going to delve even deeper into many different principles. We have a short period of time and we have a lot to cover. So by the grace of God, we're going to get started. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pray. Um, as much as you are able to, I invite you to kneel with me as we have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we realize that one of the great secrets to the power of Jesus' ministry is that he was always aware of where he was in prophecy. And Father, we desire as men and women of God that we too might walk with that same power that Jesus had so long ago when he walked this earth. And Father, we realize that if we look carefully at his pattern, we will see that as he was aware of where he was in prophecy, if we are aware of where we are, that we, by your grace, will continue to live a life that is pleasing and holy in your sight. And we will do it with a greater sense of urgency, realizing that truly the coming of the Lord is soon upon us. Abide with us now, teach us from your word. May we yield to the voice of your spirit and may you do as you have promised and guide us into all truth. For this is our prayer and our thanksgiving that we give, asking it with the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of John chapter 14. I hope you have your Bibles. We all have a Bible in here. Is that right? Yes. Amen. We would dare not come to a class where we are seeking to awake and not have the chief tool that's going to help us to awake. And that is God's word. So therefore, I want to make sure we all have our Bibles. And I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to the book of John chapter 14. John, the 14th chapter. And I want you to see what God's word says so that way we can all carefully understand the points that Jesus is making. In John, the 14th chapter, and when you get there, I'm going to ask that you let me know by saying amen. amen. In John, chapter 14, I want you to see what Jesus says. It's a beautiful statement. It says in John 14, starting at verse 1, and I'm going to ask if we can all read it together. I will be reading from the King James Version. The Bible says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what does he say? I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also." Jesus makes it very, very clear. He says, yes, it is true that I have to go away. He makes it clear. I have to go away. But then he goes on and he follows through by saying, but I'm coming again. And he says, and I'm not just coming again simply to say, look, I'm here. He's saying, look, I'm coming again because I'm coming back for you. You are the apple of God's eye, Zechariah tells us. 
His focus in the work in the sanctuary above is so that one day he is going to be reunited with his people. It is the longing of Jesus' heart to be reunited with you and I, not through burning bushes, not through the written word, not even through God's man's servant, but God wants to get back to the point that he can speak to his people face to face again. It's the longing of his heart. Now, considering this point, I want you to capture something. If I would ask you the question, what really is the purpose of prophecy anyhow? I mean, we're talking about coming events. We're talking about how close is close. We're talking about the second coming of Jesus. But my question is this. As we study prophecy, Revelation 17, Revelation 13, Daniel, and Revelation, and all these different books, what is really the purpose of prophecy anyhow? What would you say? Yes, sir. The purpose would be for God to reveal himself to his people. Would there be one more answer? Okay, would there be one more answer? What do you think is the real reason why God gives us prophecy anyhow? So we can prepare for Christ's coming, amen? Now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give you a biblical explanation on why God gives us prophecy. And I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. If you don't get this, you see, it's imperative that we understand, yes, it is true, God wants to reveal himself, and yes, it is true, God wants us to be prepared for his coming, but there is something even higher that Jesus wants to bring out, and it's found right here in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. In fact, if you miss this point, you miss everything. And this is the reason why there are so many individuals who name the name of Christ, but they are not living their daily lives as Christians even though they are incredible students of Bible prophecy. It's found right here in the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. It says right here in verse 19, look at this, it's very clear. The Bible says in 2 Peter 1, in verse 19, it says, let's read it together. We have also a more what? Sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until something happens. What happens? The day dawn and the day star, what? Arises in your heart. So prophecy is designed to function as a light that shines in a dark place until something happens. Now the first examination that you want to find out is, has my study in prophetic lines caused the day star to arise in my heart? By the way, who's that day star? Jesus. It's Jesus, isn't it? Now, I would ask people, and I typically do this in a class, I do not want us to get comfortable with Adventist lingo. As it has been echoed already between last night and this morning, sometimes we get very comfortable using Adventist lingo. What I mean by that is sometimes we say things like 1844, 1260, 1798. That's Adventist language. We understand that when we say these things, they have certain types of meaning, but I wonder sometimes if we really know what we're talking about. So therefore, when we say, oh yes, this day star represents Jesus, my question to you is, where in the Bible does it tell us that? Because if we don't really have a text on it, then the question is, do we really believe? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So therefore, if we really don't have any word to back up what we believe, are we really exercising faith, or could it be that we have presumption? And God is not going to save not one presumptuous soul but God is going to save faithful people. So when I ask you the question, you are telling me that Jesus is the one that is represented as this day star. My question to you is, where in the Bible do we find that? Yes, sir. Revelation 22:16. Praise the Lord. Revelation 22 and verse 16. Let's go there very quickly. I see some brethren in here like to study. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16. In Revelation 22 and verse 16, let's look at what the Bible says. And this is how we can know that this is coming from thus saith the Lord, not thus saith man. In Revelation 22 and verse 16, the Bible says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So therefore we know that the role, the function of prophecy is so that God's people will behold this light. This light is not to lead us to get into a whole bunch of fearful activity to prepare for the coming of the Lord. This light is not to build us up to become intellectual giants and begin to take our intellect and think that my intellect and my understanding of Bible truth constitutes righteousness. 
The reason why the light shines is so that I might see my need for Jesus and you might see your need for Jesus. So as we get ready to study the prophetic lines and as we get ready to see how close is close, my hope and my prayer is that you will not look at this subject just so that you can be more informed. Why do I say that? What do you think was the greatest challenge of the Jewish nation during Christ's day? What, what do you think was the, the greatest deception that affected the Jews that were living in Jesus' time? What would you think that would be? There was something, and I bring this up for a very, very relevant point. This is the reason why the Lord inspired me to put together this specific subject, practical Christianity in light of last day events. What was the greatest deception you think that affected the Jewish people during Christ's time? False prophecy, okay. Anyone else? Legalism. Very good point. Write this down. Desire of Ages, page 309. In Desire of Ages, page 309, we are told, through the spirit of prophecy, we are told that, Desire of Ages, page 309, we are told that the greatest deception that affected the people during Christ's time was that an intellectual understanding of truth constituted righteousness. End quote. They thought that because I can decode who the beast is, they thought that because I can decode who this is and who that is, they thought that that's enough. And they never allowed all that truth that they understood to have a corresponding experience in their daily life. And the Messiah was right in their face and they missed it. And the same way that that was their problem then, so it is that that is many of our problems today. So as we go through this study, I want you to understand, we are going to study prophecy, no doubt about it, but I want you to see Jesus in it. You have to be able to see your Savior, your personal Savior, that is preparing to come for you. But now I got some news from you. How many of you believe Jesus is about to come? And we believe that we need to prepare for that, amen? Well, brothers and sisters, do you believe that the greatest way to prepare for the coming of Christ is to follow what Jesus said? Do you believe that? All right, then let's go to the book of Mark chapter 13. In Mark chapter 13, the Bible makes something very, very clear to you and I that if we see it and if we apply it, we would do well. In Mark, the 13th chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says. The Bible says in Mark chapter 13, now this, this is very powerful because you and I just said and we agree that if we are going to prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ, then we must make sure that we follow what Jesus said. That only makes sense. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some things that Jesus himself told us in Mark, the 13th chapter. And I want you to see what the Bible says. And let's go ahead and let's start in verse 10. In Mark 13 and verse 10, if you're there, say amen. amen. All right, let's read this together. We're going to start at verse 10 and we're going to take it on down. It says... And the gospel must first be published among all nations. It says, but when they shall lead you and deliver you up to take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do ye premeditate, but whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now watch this now. It says, now the brother shall betray the brother to death. It says, and the father, the son and children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. It says, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now, I want you to see some counsel that Jesus gave us right here in verse 14. In verse 14, the Bible says, but when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them that be in Judea do what? It says, flee to the mountains. Then it says, and let him that is on the housetop not go down into the house, neither enter therein to take anything out of his house. And let him that is in the field not turn back again for to take up his garment. But woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. And pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. For in those days shall be what? Affliction. So in those days, there shall be affliction. Now catch this now. It says, such as was not from the beginning of the creation, which God created unto this time, neither shall be. Now I want you to catch this. This is beautiful. 
And except that the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he hath chosen, he has shortened the days. And then if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ, or lo, he is there, believe him not. For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. But what does Jesus tell us in that next verse? He says, but take ye heed. Behold, I have foretold you all things. Jesus made it very clear. He made it very clear. You see, in John 14, did Jesus promise that he's coming? But in Mark 13, do you see that Jesus says, but before I come, there's a crisis that's going to come. And Jesus says, before I come, a crisis is going to come. And in that last verse that he ju we just read, it said, but take ye heed. What does it mean to take ye heed? Here goes Jesus lining up all these challenges, all these trials, all these tribulations that are getting ready to come. And then he tells us to take heed. What do you think it means to take heed? What does that mean? Here goes Jesus. He lined up prophecy. He said, look, I'm going to tell you all these things are getting ready to come to pass. All these things are getting ready to show itself. And then he goes on in the and he says to us, take heed. So what does it mean to take heed? Be ready. Be ready. Be ready for what? Be ready for his coming. Was that the context of what he was saying? Brothers and sisters, go back to the text. Was he talking about his second coming before those verses when he was telling us to take heed? Was he talking about his second coming? No, he was talking about what? He was talking about the tribulation. He was talking about the crisis. And he said, take heed, be ready for the crisis. Now watch this. Here's the divine connection. Those who are ready for the crisis are those who are ready for Christ. Those who are unready for the crisis are those who are not ready for Jesus Christ coming. And you know what amazes me? Because there are many places that we can hear much about Jesus' second coming in Adventist circles and outside of Adventist circles. But the question is, if there's a crisis that Jesus himself told me was coming before he comes and Jesus himself said, take heed, then if all I do is tell everybody the crisis, um, the crisis coming, Christ is coming, without preparing them for the crisis that comes before Christ is coming, then there's a chance that the people will be unprepared. And if they're unprepared for the crisis, then what's going to happen is they will be unprepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. So therefore, how close is really close? We're not just simply looking for how close is the second coming of Jesus in our minds, but what we're also looking for is how close is the crisis. Because if I understand how close the crisis is, it helps me to understand how close the coming Christ is, but it also will put me in a state of a sense of urgency that I might get ready and that you might get ready. You see, you can't read the book Great Controversy under the subject Destruction of Jerusalem. You know what's amazing? I love that book. That book is full of information for you and I today. And it tells a story, you probably know it, you heard about Josephus the historian, when he talked about a man who saw the destruction of Jerusalem getting ready to take place in A.D. 70. And you, you might remember this, that man who was going around and he had a certain statement that he would say all throughout Jerusalem as he walked about to and fro. How many of us remember what that statement was? Does anybody remember? He would go throughout Jerusalem and he would say, woe to Jerusalem, woe to Jerusalem. And the reason why this man would go about and say that is because he was studying prophecy. He knew that the destruction of Jerusalem was getting ready to happen in A.D. 70. But you know what's amazing? Do you know what Great Controversy says? It says that the people got so annoyed with this man who was going around saying, woe to Jerusalem, woe to Jerusalem, that it says they began to throw darts at him to try to shut him up. You're annoying me. I don't want to hear a message. I want to be in carnal security. I want to continue to enjoy the church and the world. 
Don't tell me, woe to Jerusalem. You're disrupting my loving of pleasure more than loving of God. They didn't want to hear that. It says that the man ended up getting locked up into prison. Now, here's the deepest point of all. I mean, when I read this, it shocked me. I've got to be honest with you. Here goes this man, aware of prophecy, aware of what's getting ready to come. And look at what he says. He says, woe to Jerusalem, woe to Jerusalem. He's letting them know destruction's coming, Jerusalem. But guess what happened? Did you know that that man, he died in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70? He died in the destruction. Even deeper is that in Great Controversy, page 30, the prophet of God said, not one Christian died in that siege. What does that tell us about that man who understood prophecy then? He not only ignored it, but he was not a Christian. Because she said not one Christian died in that siege, but that man did die in the siege. But was he aware of prophecy? Yes, yes he was. Did he die in the siege? Yes. Not one Christian died in the siege, so was he a Christian? No. So do you understand why there's a need for practical Christianity? in light of last day events. Because there are individuals who are heralding the coming of the Lord, even the coming of the crisis, but they themselves are not allowing themselves to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, what is this crisis anyhow? We read it in Revelation, the 13th chapter. Let's go to Revelation, the 13th chapter. In Revelation chapter 13, we see that Jesus makes it very clear. He says, oh yes, it is true, I'm coming. I have prepared a place for you, and I'm coming for you, and I'm looking forward to receiving you. Well, then after that, Jesus goes on, and he says, well, he says, also, I want to let you know that before I come, there's a crisis coming. There is a crisis that comes before I, Christ, comes. Then he goes on, and then he says, take heed. Be prepared for the crisis, because those who are prepared for the crisis are also going to be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. So now let's look at Revelation 13. Let's really identify what is this crisis anyhow. What really is the, the great climax of all these prophetic events anyhow? It's found right here in the book of Revelation, the 13th chapter. We'll start at verse 1. We'll take it down to verse 3. And then we're going to go ahead and continue. It says in Revelation 13 and verse 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head is the name of blasphemy. The beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and how much of the world? And it says, and all the world wondered after this beast. So the Bible is very clear that though this beast who was once alive and doing well, it suffered a deadly wound, but eventually this wound was going to be healed. And then after this great healing event, many of the world will wonder after this beast. They will look at this beast in awe. They will honor this beast and reverence it. Now, it goes on even deeper in verse 11 of the very same chapter, Revelation 13, verse 11. And then it goes even deeper, and now it says this. It says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Do we know who this beast is? Do we know who this beast is of Revelation 13, 11? Amen? Yes? No? All right. Who is this beast then? The United States of America. I know why you hesitated to answer. Because you know I'm going to ask you to give me a proof text. But don't worry. For the, for the, for the sake of this study... I'm trusting and hoping that you went through the word of God to come to your answers because that's not my focus for this study. But you are right. It is the United States of America. Now, watch this. Here it is in verse 12. It says, and he exercises all the power of the first beast. So the United States of America is going to be very powerful because the first beast wasn't a world-dominating power. So therefore, if the United States is now coming on the scene, will the United States be a world-dominating power? Yes, it will. Okay, verse 12, it says, And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Here, the Bible literally tells us the mission of the United States of America. 
The mission of the United States of America, according to Bible prophecy, is to cause the world to wander back after that beast. That's its mission. That's its purpose of being around. Now, I want you to catch this. It goes on to say, and he doeth, verse 13, and he doeth. This is how he's going to do it. And he doeth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that who? They should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Now, that ought to wake up somebody's mind right now. The reason why we know that the second beast of Revelation 13 is the United States of America is because, did you notice that the power comes from bottom up and not top down? It was right there in the text we just read it. Look at how the United States of America functions. It says, let's look at verse 14 again. Tell me if you see it. It says, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image. In other words, does the beast say that I'm going to make an image? Is it a dictator type of beast? No, it says that they should make an image to the beast so that they are going to coerce, they're going to try to encourage, they're going to try to deceive, they're going to try to do everything they can so that they can get the people down at the bottom to come together and vote and agree we need to make an image to the beast. The power is going to come from bottom down, not top up. And there is no country on earth that functions like that except the United States of America. Even when we just had our last presidential election, our dear president today, he made it clear. He said, you chose me. And he was especially saying that to a lot of the young people. He was saying, you chose me. The power is with you. And over and over again, he's echoing that point. He says, Americans, the power is with you. He's not speaking like other world leaders where they're saying, look, the power is with me. You do what I say. He's saying, look, the power's with you. And here it is, right here in prophetic line, we're seeing, so it is with this second beast. The beast is saying to the people, the power's with you. So watch this now, verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name, verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 603 score and six. So, brothers and sisters, the place that we're all headed, according to prophetic line, is that we are literally about to see the mark of the beast. This thing that we have been studying about for so long, we are about to see it in this generation. I'm going to show you why according to the scripture. But the first question I have is, what is the mark of the beast? This is this great crisis that's going to come, that's going to bring out all of these tribulations and all of these things that Jesus was talking about. But what exactly is the mark of the beast anyhow? Who's the beast? Who's the beast? We know that a beast is a kingdom. Daniel 7 tells us that. But who is, what, you know, who is this beast in Revelation 13 that's being spoken of? This beast that was once flourishing, then it suffered a deadly wound, it was healed. The second beast, the United States of America, came onto the scene to draw everybody back to pay homage to this first beast. Who is that beast? Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. Let's make it plain, okay? It is Rome. We even like to use terms like the papacy. But you can say papacy, you can say Roman Catholic Church. Are we talking about the same thing? Yeah. All right. Now, here's my question. What did the church of Rome say with their own mouths was the mark of their ecclesiastical or spiritual authority? The, the sacredness of Sunday. They said that we transferred the solemnity of the seven-day Sabbath and transferred it over to Sunday. They made that clear. That is the mark of their authority. Therefore, the mark of the beast is the enforcement. Did we, did we read in Revelation 13 that we keep hearing that the nation will cause individuals to worship? They will cause. That word cause means to force. So therefore, there will be an enforcement of Sunday observance. Is that right? That's what the mark of the beast is. It's the enforcement of Sunday worship. Now, how close is close? How close is close? Let's go to Matthew chapter 24. 
Matthew, the 24th chapter, have mercy. You know, I remember when I was a child and I used to, I, I lived in uh, Queens, New York, and I did a lot of traveling by bus and subway. And one of the things that I always found interesting is that when I would travel, I would see these guys, the, the, these, these men, they would have these picket looking signs and it would say stuff like, repent for the end is near. And, you know, and they sometimes would look a little strange and they'd walk around, repent, the end is near. And, you know, people are just mocking them, making jokes at them. And they don't care. They're just like, repent, the end is near. And they're going back and forth. And I remember being five years old and I'm seeing somebody, repent, the end is near. And next thing you know, I'm 10 years old. Same guy, repent, the end is near. 15 years old, same guy, repent, the end is near. 20 years old, 25 years old. I'm starting to tell on my age, aren't I? And here it is that all of these things, and over and over again, I kept seeing, seeing, repent, the end is near to repent. And then I would meet uh, adults who are older than me, and they say, yeah, I remember people walking around saying, repent, the end is near. And what has happened is as a result of Christ delaying his coming, individuals are finding themselves once again falling back into carnal security. So that even when we read what I'm about to read to you from Matthew 24, do you know some people are not moved by these different texts of Scripture? But I think I know something in this text that might move you. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, I want you to notice something that Jesus says. Now, here it goes. The disciples, they want to know. They're like, Lord, look, tell us, what's the thing that's going to happen before you come? Tell us how this whole thing's going to lay out. And then look at Matthew 24, starting at verse 4. Catch this. Matthew 24, starting at verse 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. Now, if Jesus get ready to start talking to me that way, I'm going to really pay attention to what he's saying. Jesus starts by saying, take heed, that no man deceives you, which means that more than likely, a lot of deceptions are going to come past my way, and I need to take heed and make sure that I will not be deceived. Now, watch this. It says, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, verse 6 tells us something interesting in verse 7. It says, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, typically when you go through a text like this and you begin talking about calamities in the land, you talk about diseases and all of these different things. People say, well, there's always been calamities. Now, how many of you have either said that or heard somebody say that? When you're trying to help make them aware, we're living in the end times. We need to get ready for the coming of the Lord. We need to get ready for this crisis that's coming. That sometimes that's the response that we get back. Either we said it ourselves or somebody else said, look, there's always been storms. There's always been this stuff, you know? Have we all heard that before? Have we all said that at one point? Yes, all right? Now, I want you to see something here. Here it is that the Bible talks about Calamities by land and sea. Now, we agree that there are calamities by land and sea. I would would not doubt that by any means. But is that really letting us know the coming of the Lord? Would you agree that when we see calamities happening by land and by sea and all these different things, does that let us know that Jesus is coming? So what is it that would change it? I mean, if calamities have been happening from way back when, what is it then that would probably make the difference? What do you think would help us to realize the sense of urgency? They increased. increased. In other words, in volume 9 of the testimonies, when the prophet of God says that the final movements will be rapid ones, could it be that that lets us know just a little clearer how close is close? Let me give you an example of what I mean. I had this little document. I went on Wikipedia. And I was able to pull out some information I thought was very interesting. What I decided to do is I I wanted to do a 10-year study. I said, Lord, could it be that within the past 10 years, have we seen a rapidity of all of these events? Because there was a time that we would have a large earthquake, like something like the Great Lisbon. Years would go by, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years would go by before you have another earthquake of such a magnitude. Is that right? Same thing with tornadoes and hurricanes and all these things. I wonder if this is ironic. We're in what year now, 2009? All right, so then let's go ahead. In 1999... In Turkey, there was the Izmit earthquake. The Izmit earthquake took place in 1999. It killed 17,118 people. 
This was called the Izmit earthquake, and this took place just in 1999. Then what I found that was interesting is not only that, in 2003, or rather, let's, you know, let's not, let's not jump too high yet. Let's go to 2001. Now, I, this is funny. I'm just looking at storms, tempests, earthquakes, and all these other things. I actually had a laundry list of information, things that just took place just within the past 10 years that would make your mouth drop to the floor. But listen to this. In 2001, you had the great Gujarat earthquake, which took 20,000 people's lives. That was in 2001 in India. And then in 2003, you had the 2003 BAM earthquake in Iran that killed 30,000 individuals. Not only that, but in Western Europe, you had the 2003 European heat wave that killed 37,451 people. Just in 2003. In 2004, what took place? Mm -mm, 2005. The tsunami. In the tsunami in 2004 in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, it took the lives of 229,866 people. In 2005, in India and Thailand, you had another earthquake. Actually, in Pakistan, you had the Kashmir earthquake that killed 86,000 people. In 2006, you had in Romania, Spain, 2006, the European heat wave, which killed 3,400 people. In 2007, in Hungary, you had the Hungary heat wave, which killed over 500 people. In 2008, you had the Myanmar cyclone, the cyclone Nagris, which killed 146,000 people. In Afghanistan, you had the Afghanistan blizzard that killed 173 people. And here it is that just over the past 10 years, you just see from 1999, just up to our age, you're seeing over a million people that's being destroyed. So therefore, when we understand that the final movements will be rapid ones, could it be that this is one of the harbingers that the Lord is letting us know, my coming is closer? Did the Great Lisbon earthquake wake us up? Did it do that? Did it help us to see that these final events were coming to place? Yes, it did. But are we seeing a rapidity like we've never seen before? Yes, we are. Now, here's something that I thought was very interesting. It is not only by land and by sea that we see all these things happening, but there's something else. Let's go back to Matthew 24. Let's take a look even further now. In Matthew, the 24th chapter, I want you to see something else that the Bible tells us. The Bible says in Matthew 24, and we're going ahead now, and we're looking at verse 9. In Matthew 24 and verse 9, the Bible says... Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Jesus understood not only are we going to see the prophetic harbingers that are taking place just throughout the things that we see through land and sea, but Jesus also said that there are going to be some problems that's going to take place in the religious world as well. Why do I say the religious world? What do you think? Was there anything in the text that we just saw that gave us an idea of things that's taking place in the religious world? What, what, what do we read that helps us to see that even in the religious world, there were going to be problems? False prophets. False prophets. Now, I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's amazing because God made it very clear to you and I exactly what's going to take place in the last days in the religious world. You see, it's not enough that we're simply seeing things taking place all throughout the world as it relates to storms and calamities and earthquakes and all these things. And even my dear brother who brought up the Hurricane Katrina. You know, Hurricane Katrina was very powerful to me. The reason why was because on April 16, 1906, Ellen White had a vision. She saw in San Francisco, in vision, she saw all this destruction taking place. She saw a city that was literally burnt up and destroyed. She woke up out of that dream and she was very perplexed. She was very confused. She was saying, well, you know, what was this dream? And the next thing you know, on April 18th, she saw the paper in San Francisco. It said, San Francisco destroyed by earthquake and fire. Ellen White, she went down to the area. She saw the destruction, and God said, this was the work of my destroying angels. 
And I actually went online, and you can do this, you can actually download from the San Francisco Museum images of the San Francisco earthquake and fire of 1906. And it is a most amazing thing to see because when you see all of that destruction and you see the fire, you look at it and you say, have mercy, this was the work of angels. It was the work of destroying angels, she said. Here's the thing that I thought was interesting. She said before the close of Earth's history, she says we will once again see calamities taking place such as the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Hurricane Katrina happened in 2005. And you can read the San Francisco Chronicles, September 4, 2005. You can actually look it up on the internet. The San Francisco Chronicles, September 4, 2005. You know what they said? I mean, they didn't even realize they were fulfilling prophecy. They actually said, we have never seen destruction take place in America like this since the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. They quoted it with their own mouths. They didn't even realize that from their own lips they were fulfilling what God said 99 years ago when that took place. So Hurricane Katrina is very significant as it relates to prophecy because we were told that that was going to take place shortly before the close of Earth's history. So therefore, it is not simply in just looking at the calamities all throughout the world, but now 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us something even about the world of religion, the religious sector. Notice what the Bible says, starting at verse 1. And let's read it together. The Bible says, This know also that in the last days, what kind of times will come? Perilous times shall come. It says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Now, most people, when they read these texts, you would think it's talking about the world. Because it sounds like stuff we see in the world all the time, right? But verse 5 puts it all in perspective. Notice what it says in verse 5. In verse 5, what does it say? Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. When's the last time you've seen the world have a form of godliness? When is the last time you've gone in the world and they looked godly? The world, brothers and sisters, does not look godly. Go to 1 John chapter 2. <laughs> no, 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 no. The world does not look godly. Go to 1 John chapter 2. Let's make this very clear. In 1 John chapter 2, here's what God says about the world. God makes it very clear in 1 John the second chapter. When you get there, let me know by saying amen. In 1 John chapter 2, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, starting at verse 15, it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, what's in the world? It says right here in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. So therefore, the Bible's very clear that the world reveals to you and I lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The world, the world does not have a form of godliness. The pride of life does not even look godly. Lust of the flesh don't even look godly, and lust of the eyes certainly don't as well. So therefore, this was a description of churches. This was a picture of the religious world that was taking place. Now, do we have any evidence of things like that taking place? I want to read this little quote to you here. Just so that you can see that it is true that even in the religious world, we see these problems taking place. There was a situation, you remember that just a few years ago, we had the major issue of sexual abuse in the Church of Rome. I want you to listen to this. It says the Roman Catholic Church has been the focal point of a great deal of public anger. Unfortunately, it's been largely misdirected. In 2004, February of 2004, CNN was able to view a draft copy of a survey prepared by the church. It reveals that 4,450 of the 110,000 Roman Catholic clergy who served between 1950 and 2002 have been accused of molesting minors. 
It says this has resulted in 11,000 individual abuse claims against Catholic clergy during that interval. Can you imagine 11,000 people saying that they have been abused and it wasn't because of what the world did, but it was because of what was taking place in the religious world, in churches. Not only that, man, when I read this, I said, boy, oh boy, look at this. It says religions get supersized at megachurches. I don't know if you remember in 2004 when Newsweek did a major article and they talked about how you're seeing all these megachurches that are coming about. All of a sudden you're seeing these 10, 15, 20,000 seat auditoriums that are now churches. And here it is. Listen to what it says. It says, at the biggest church in the country, which was Lake, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, it says Pastor Joel Osteen preaches to some 25,000 people each week. Oh, I'd love to get the three angels' messages in there. It says, and sin is not on the menu. Can you imagine that? Secular media printed that out. It said, listen to that again. I want you to hear this good now. It says that the biggest church in the country, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, Pastor Joel Osteen preaches to some 25,000 people each week, and sin is not on the menu. In other words, sin is not being addressed. Now, why do you think that that's a bad thing? Is that a bad thing? Yeah. You sure? Oh, yeah. Well, why is it a bad thing that, that, that sin is not being addressed? Say again? Praise God. You don't need a savior if you don't see your sins. You see, Jesus, what did he say? He says, I go to prepare a place for you that when I come, I may receive you unto myself. That where I am there, you may be also. So there it is in Isaiah 58, when God says to his ministers, cry aloud and spare not, raise thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their sins. Why does God want us to show us our sins? So we can feel bad? That we might be cleansed, that we can be saved from ourselves. Why? Isaiah 59, verse 2, sin separates us from God. As long as we have sin in our lives, there will be no reunion with Jesus. But sin's not on the menu at this church. Now, I want you to listen to this. It says, it's incredible. This was posted January 12th in 2008. Mega churches under investigation. We're talking about the last day events, false prophets, all these things. We're seeing it come to pass right before our very eyes. There's agitation in the world as it relates to calamities. There's agitation even in the religious world. Notice what it says. Mega churches under investigation posted January 12, 2008. It says, it's incredible to imagine that we live during the most advanced time in regards to medical science, yet millions of people will still go to churches, donate a percentage of their income, and literally get slapped in the face from a pastor and believe God will cure what ails them. It says, well, these mega churches become mega because they don't have to pay taxes, and it looks like a handful are now under investigation. What churches are under investigation? It says, Benny Hinn, a TV preacher who runs the World Healing Church in Grapevine, Texas, Hinn who travels the globe conducting faith healing revivals, lives in a seven-bathroom, eight-bedroom mansion overlooking the Pacific Ocean, valued at $10 million. Says the Reverend Creflo Dollars, World Changes. This is all in the internet. This is all public information. So, you know, if they sue me, they got to sue those folks first. In church, your old church is just down the street. Well, I mean, they're, they're, less, than a, less than two, three miles away. That's right. It says, Reverend Creflo Dollars, World Changes Church International in College Park, Georgia. Dollar drives a Rolls Royce, has large homes in Georgia and New York. He is asked to provide a list of all vehicles providing for himself, his wife, board members, and ministry employees. Paul and Randy Weiss, Without Walls International Church in Tampa, Florida. It says, in a letter to the ministry, Grassley asked the couple to provide a list of expense account items, including but not limited to clothing expenses and any cosmetic surgery for years 2004 to present. Joyce Meyer Ministries in Fenton, Missouri. It says, Grassley asked Meyer and her husband, David, to explain expenditures like a $23,000 toilet with a marble top a $30,000 conference table, an $11,000 French clock, and a $19,000 pair of vases for the ministry headquarters. Brothers and sisters, do you understand why people are turned off with church? When they see sexual abuse taking place over here, 
When they see people taking advantage of individuals and taking their money so that they may splurge it on themselves, no wonder the world is not interested in church anymore. Did God see these problems? You better believe he did. And John saw that because individuals were going to become irreligious, because individuals were going to get tired of what the churches have to say, because they seem not to be saying much at all, after a while, what took place was simply this. People started to follow what they believed. They started to follow their own traditions. How do we know this? Go to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, individuals were getting tired of what they were seeing in the world. Here it is. Paul makes it clear in 2 Timothy 3. He says, look, all these things are taking place all throughout the world. And now here it is. He says, even in the religious sector, we're going to see inconsistency. So look at what happens in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at what happens. Paul says in verse 3, he says, for the time will come. Prophecy again. It says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. We are living in a time where we're seeing that right now. People don't want to hear what the Bible says anymore. People don't want to hear what the churches have to say anymore because all they see is inconsistency. Not only that, there are many different harbingers that are taking place, but brothers and sisters, remember, what's the ultimate goal that all these things are headed towards? We read it in Revelation 13. What's it, where, where are all of these things, the calamities in the world, the inconsistency in religion, the people's hearts that are waxing cold and the love of God is being removed, where is it all tending in one direction? And what's that direction? The passing of? We studied it in Revelation 13. The mark of the beast... And the mark of the beast is the enforcement of Sunday worship. In other words, a national Sunday law. This is what it's all leading towards. How do we know this? Let's go to the book of Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah the 13th chapter. I want to show you something. You see, a lot of folks in the world, they're going to start waking up. They're going to say, you know what? I think we know it. You see, I, I, I love our presidential administration right now. Because, you know, they're making very sincere efforts to try to make sure that we get out, of the, get out of this bad economic state and that we overcome the different challenges that are taking place in the world. But you know what? I'm so glad that prophets were called seers. Because that tells me that prophets can see things even deep down into the future. I want, to listen, I want you to listen to a quote here in Volume 9 of the Testimonies, page 13. Volume 9 of the Testimonies, page 13. Listen to this. It says, there are not many, even among educators and statesmen, who comprehend the causes that underlie the present state of society. Those who hold the reins of government are not able to solve the problem of moral corruption, poverty, pauperism, and increasing crime. They are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more secure basis. Are you hearing me? So as wonderful as it is that we see all of these efforts taking place, the prophetic utterance tells us they are struggling in vain to place business operations on a more stable basis. Listen to what it says. It says, if men would give more heed to the teaching of God's word, they would find a solution of the problems that perplex them. It is only until that I see the various leadership within our world coming together and saying, let's study the Bible, let's find out what God's word says, and let's do it. It is only at that time that I will have confidence. As long as they're trying to find a solution without the word of God, we have been told they are laboring in vain. And that comes from volume 9 of the Testimonies, page 13. So therefore, as beautiful as it is that we see individuals trying to bring things back in line and bring things all together, but here's the reality of what's going to happen. Right here in Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, you're going to see what's really going to happen. What's going to happen is simply this. As it relates to the economy, as it relates to all the different challenges in the world, this is where it's all going to end up lying down. In Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, I want you to notice what the Bible says, starting at verse 15. In Nehemiah 13, verse 15, the Bible says, In those days saw I in Judah... 
some treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and lading asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on when? The Sabbath day. It says, And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Now I want you to catch this now. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Now watch this. The issue was that the Sabbath day was being profaned. Watch this. It says, Did not our fathers thus... What did the fathers do? They profaned the Sabbath. Look at what happened when the fathers profaned the Sabbath. Did not your fathers thus and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Wait a minute. What is the popular interpretation of Revelation 13, 11 today? We understand that it's talking about the Sabbath, but it's talking about the United States of America. Is that right? What do modern evangelicals call the United States? Modern Israel. They refer, evangelicals today, popular evangelicals, they refer to America as modern Israel. And what is it that we just read in Nehemiah? Israel suffered as a result of profaning God's Sabbath. And this is why we're told in great controversy that many individuals will look at the calamities. They're going to look at the economy. They're going to look at the morality of the world. They're going to look at all of these issues. And they're going to say, you know what? We have turned our backs on the Sabbath of the Lord our God. But will they be talking about the seventh day Saturday? No, brothers and sisters. What day are they going to be talking about? Sunday. Are we seeing that happen right now? Oh, yes. Supreme Court, 1961. Sunday laws were passed right here in America. Supreme Court, 1961. Sunday laws were passed right here. The reason they said it was that so that they can help with the business. They tried to make it a business issue and an economic issue and tried to say, oh, it's not religious. But we know that's not true. Rome was right there harvesting it on and saying, come on, go ahead. And they were pushing it. And it was passed in 1961, all these Sunday blue laws. Now, what's so deep about that? Because it has always been the mission of the Church of Rome to get itself reestablished so that way it can once again take the supremacy and pass all of its dogmas. January 1st, 2009, Sunday law was passed right in Croatia, right in the UK. A Sunday law was passed, brothers and sisters. This is the document in my hand. A Sunday law was passed this year I want you to listen to this. It says, retailers sack workers as never on Sunday, quote, law licks in. This was January 12, 2009, issue 816. Under pressure from the church, Croatia banned shops from working on Sundays and retailers immediately began firing workers. The Slobodna Dalmatija Daily said on January 8th, Large retail chains started first in the first week of the year, saying they conducted one-fifth of their business on Sundays. The Getro chain has, go, has, has let go 200 employees, and Magma Toy Stores did not renew annual contracts with 155, the report said. Small single stores are also expected to follow suit. There's a battle going on. But the thing that's interesting about Croatia is that it's predominantly Roman Catholic. Wherever Rome has its power, it is going to go ahead and try to build its case. And in seeing all this happen, brothers and sisters, God says to his people, realizing that we are closer than we've ever been to seeing all these things unfold, the very church that God raised up, the Seventh-day Adventist church, you see, when John was wondering and he saw all people wondering after the beast, there was a small group that wasn't wondering. And that group was found right there in Revelation 14. Verses 6 through 12. It says in Revelation 14, 6 through 12, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. But there was one final attack. The devil knew that those who threatened his kingdom most are those who he will attack the strongest. There is only one movement on earth, brothers and sisters, 
that can truly cause Babylon to fall. And that is the seven-day Adventist church. And my final text that I'll read to you comes from Revelation, the third chapter. The devil saw in Revelation chapter 3, he saw that I see this movement that has been designed to call Babylon to fall. The Bible says in Revelation, the third chapter, starting at verse 14, the very movement that God has raised up to finish the work, to point out who Babylon is, to let people know about the everlasting gospel, unfortunately, this was the condition as a result of the attacks of the enemy. Right here in Revelation 3, verse 14, it says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eyes off, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. I will sup with him and he with me to him that overcometh. I grant will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as also I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. The truth of the reality is, is that, yes, we are the remnant, brothers and sisters. We are not Babylon. We are the remnant. We have been called to finish the work. But the problem is that some of us have allowed the Laodicean spirit to dwell within us. And we think more of ourselves than we should. And as a result of this, there will be many who God will have to spew out as a result of this. Why is practical Christianity so important? Brothers and sisters, as we see the prophetic lines all showing very clearly, we are about to come into that crisis that's going to lead us to the coming Christ. Did you know Great Controversy, page 608, says this? As the storm approaches... A large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message. Who's that? That's us. It says, as the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but who were not sanctified by obedience to the truth, will abandon their position, join ranks with the opposition, and become the most bitterest enemies of their former brethren. It's going to be a large class. You are deciding right now by how you live your daily life if you're going to be counted amongst that large class. That though we profess with our lips, we will leave this faith because we never allowed God's truth to have a sanctifying effect. It stayed in the mind, but it never touched the heart. Volume 5, page 81, my last quote to you. As I gave you my last text, I give you my last quote. In volume 5, page 81, it says, The time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. It says the mark of the beast will be urged upon us. And it says, And those who have yielded step by step to worldly demands and have conformed to worldly customs, will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be rather than suffer the, danger, the dangers of death and imprisonment. And it says, many a star that we have admired for its brilliancy at that time, they will go out in darkness. We must not be counted amongst that number. If we don't know practical Christianity in light of all these last day events, if we don't allow that truth to have a sanctifying effect upon our hearts, brothers and sisters, we will be counted amongst that number. Our next session, we're going to be covering Jesus, where are you? It's a study of the work of Christ in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. 
sad to say, but there are many of us in the movement that we don't understand what that means, practically. We know the old story of 1844 and everybody waited for Jesus to come and then he never came. And we say, oh, he went from the holy to the most holy. But many of us, we, we don't understand what does that mean practically? What's that got to do with me? Our next study, help, Jesus, where are you? We are going to find out exactly where Jesus is, what is his work, what is his position, and how does that relate to me in my daily walk with him. My hope and my prayer is that we will see you all there. I know you're interested in going many places, but brothers and sisters, if you don't know God's sanctuary message, if you don't know truly how to take the three angels' messages and make it practical, how do I live the three angels' messages? If you don't understand these very important and vital principles, how can we be ready for this coming crisis? And then how can we be ready for the coming Christ? By God's grace, I pray that we have just a little bit of a clearer picture of how close is close. We're right at the brink. We're about to see some amazing things. It's going to take the majority of the world as an overwhelming surprise. May God help us that we will be a people prepared to meet our God. At this time, let us close with prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, there's so many things that are taking place in this world. And these are your love messages that you're trying to let us know. Get ready because you're coming. You want to equip us with all that we need so that though the storm may come, we will remain standing. And Father, we need the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that we might do it. We're praying on behalf of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Give us the strength we need. Help us, dear God, that we will take these truths that we have learned and studied for so many years and know how to allow it to have a sanctifying effect upon our heart. Abide with us now, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.